Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi there, you are listening to the Third Coast Pocket Conference, where your next great story begins. On the show, we share sessions from past Third Coast conferences featuring the world's top radio makers and podcasters. I'm your host, Dennis Funk. In this session from the 2006 Third Coast Conference, producer Joe Richmond, the creator of Radio Diaries, explores a method he called found narration. Joe shows us how to use archival tape, interviews, audio diary entries, and other sounds to do the job of the narrator. He also explores what producers gain and what they give up when you throw away the script. Now, here's what I'm about to become... The Invisible Narrator. When I first started doing radio, I was doing a lot of uh, news reporting and producing. And in 1996, I started the Teenage Diaries series. And since then, most of what I've been doing has been stories without a traditional scripted narrator. Um, one of the things that I find interesting about doing stories without narration is that if, if, you, if you compared, if you asked the listener to give impressions on, say, a story with a scripted narrator and one and a story without, they would talk about the scripted story, the traditional kind of reporter story as being more kind of edited and controlled and the non-narrated story is somehow more kind of organic and natural and real. Um, and since the purpose of what I want to do here today is really kind of pull the curtain back and really talk about process and nuts and bolts as much as possible, uh, the first thing I'll say is of course that impression is totally completely wrong. And I thought that to, to help me illustrate this, I wanted to play one piece of tape that, unfortunately, I did play at a um, Third Coast panel four years ago, so I apologize if anyone's heard it, but it says what I wanted to say here better than, better than I could. This is um, Walter Backerman, who was one of the last seltzer men in New York. And um, this was just, I spent a day with Walter in his truck in New York doing a, a, a portrait of him where I was taking myself out, but I was right there recording everything. And at this point, what I wanted to get from him was, you know, in the back of his truck, there are these beautiful old seltzer bottles, these blue and green old bottles from the 40s and 50s and all lined up in the back of his truck and the sun's coming down. It's like this gorgeous scene. And of course, like what I want as a radio producer is to have this, you know, have him give this image. And, I, and so I wanted him to deliver this image for the listener. And I didn't get that. Again, before we leave the back of the truck, just describe, you know, just to get a picture of it. Just quickly. Cut it, because we got to go there. We'll do it later. We'll do it later. Uh, we, just quickly, just two seconds, just describe. Okay, here we are. How many seltzer bottles are here? Just, like, describe it quickly. No story, just, like, describe it. Well, I'll describe it. So, anyhow, when I... When I uh, no, 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 not a story. Just say, here we are. As you, 
I got it. I can't do anything about the story if you know that already. So anyway, when uh, when my vehicle was stolen, fortunately I had this other one that I was able to use. And what I did. We gotta go. We don't need the story. <laughs> we do need the story. Like I gotta tell a story. I can't talk. I know. I have to tell a story. I, I wake it up so it can get worse. I know, but I just, but I just gotta get the picture of it. You know, for people on the radio who can't see it, they want to know. Okay, we're in the back of the truck. We've got how many stops bottles here? The green, just like a, a visual picture. That's that's what I want. Let me do the next two stops, and I'll describe. We'll go back in here because I really want to. I don't want to get back and forth. Okay, but we're, we're, we're here. And, and we just right. take a second. All right. So anyhow, when, when uh, I, I, I realized that I, I would never get my, my uh, well, that's soda. True. We don't need the story. Yeah, but I need the story. <laughs> the invisible, sorry, the invisible narrator. Um, so, um, okay. Obviously it's not just sticking the microphone out the window and recording actual reality. Um, you can always just cut out the narration. That's the easy part. The hard part is what do you replace it with? And the harder part is replacing it with something that, you know, the, the traditional role of the script is you use tape to give the kind of the emotion and the ex kind of experience and the kind of, you know, the life of the story, but the plot points and the real engine of the narrative comes from the script. So what do you do when you take out that script? And how do you still, how do you still tell the story? And, um, Obviously, you know, when we talk about doing non-narrated stories without a narrator, we're not really talking about not having a narrator. We use other things as a narrator. We use sound. We use archival tape. We use, um, you know, sometimes one really good interview can play the role of a narrator. Um, diaries, you know, more of a montage kind of thing. But, um, but what I want to focus on today is really how do you tell the story without the storyteller? And most of what I want to do is talk about how to do this, but I do want to just talk for a second about about why do it. And one reason is, I, th I think that um, the listener impression that I mentioned earlier is partially correct, this, this idea um, of this kind of more natural, real thing. And it's partially correct because, you know, one of the things that radio does so, and let me put about this, this lovely forest screensaver again while we, while we talk. Um, one of the things that radio does so well is, of course, it's, like, it's, an, it's an intimate medium, and it's a good storyteller medium, it's a good medium for characters, things that, things that, we, already, that we know. And you know, I, my mental image, when I think about someone listening to the piece, is always someone driving you know, home from work, stuck in traffic, you know, t turning on all things considered. And, I, and if the story is good, then I think that they're starting to picture the storyteller there in the, in, the, in the passenger seat. And, you know, is the storyteller me talking about Walter Backham in The Last Seltzer Man, or is it Walter? And that's sort of, you know, to me, that's, that's, that's one of the principles, that you, by taking out this filter, I'm hopefully making it a one-to-one -one connection between the subject of the story, or the story itself, and the listener. Another reason is that, you know, it just sounds different from a lot of what's on. I'm, I'm dealing with uh, National Public Radio news magazines, and... So if I'm doing a story like this, it just kind of sounds different to the listener from you know what they hear on a normal, uh, you know, on their on their day-to-day -day listening, and and that, and I I think you know different is always good, and then third the third reason is that I think as a producer it's a fun puzzle. I mean it's just dealing with these elements and kind of like the brain teaser of dealing with found elements to create a story. And I was thinking that about that with this morning's conference about the idea of creativity from constraint, and I know that I you know some people 
and I'm definitely one of them, feel paralyzed by too many options. And sometimes writing is that way. You can say anything, and I, I find comfort in, in having limited options. So um, I was listening to a lot of non-narrated pieces, uh, getting ready for this, and uh, some my own work and other people's. And one thing I wanted to play is a story way back, way back from the vaults, 1988. And... Um, the irony here is that this is actually not a non, non it's not a non-narrated story. It's a very, in fact, it's a very writerly story. It's a story from Sandy Tolan um, about Midland and Odessa, Texas. These two towns, one is like the white collar, one's the blue collar town. And it's like this, you know, it's a socioeconomic story. It's a story about politics and class and everything, but it's played through the story of the annual football game, this intense rivalry that happens every year, Midland and Odessa, and maybe some of you read this wonderful Buzz Bissinger book called Friday Night Lights about this yearly um, football game. And so Sandy Tolan does a story about that, you know, this great kind of small story that tells everything. And in the middle of the story is the football game itself where he just kind of steps back with the writing and lets it go with tape. And that's the part that I wanted to play. This is two minutes of what is, I think, a 15-minute God, we're thankful for this day, and we're thankful for this another opportunity. And Father, we pray that in these four quarters that you will be proud of the way we play, and these one of us will be proud of the way we play. Thank you for the building that you've given to each one of us. One of the reasons I wanted to play that is because um, I, I, we probably all have this one piece in our in our lives that was that kind of like that breakthrough piece that um, kind of helped us decide what we wanted to do. And for me, this was definitely it. I was actually working in radio at the time at WBUR doing news writing and news producing, and 
at the time, I didn't really know there was such a thing as radio documentaries. I loved the idea of doing documentaries. I thought that meant film, and I thought radio meant news. And hearing this piece was kind of a, you know, it blew my mind. Um, it's also like, to hear this, it just, sound, just doesn't, doesn't sound like NPR sounds today. Um, in fact, at the end of the piece, Sandy has his last line, and then you hear music before he does his sign-off, and there's 10 seconds of music. I mean, people would be fired for that <laughs> now. Um, but there are, a few, there are a few elements in this piece that I think are really useful, and you look at what script do we hear in that little bit. The script only comes in, Sandy only comes in basically to identify people. He says, that's, you know, there's the coach, that's the score. Here's this guy talking. You know, it's not, not doing much more than that. It's an easy thing to replace if you're getting the right material out of your interviews. The sound elements, he's got all sorts of sound elements to tell this football story. Um, you know, the, the coach and the, and the sound of the game and the band, the marching band and the play-by-play -play announcer, which of course is totally crucial. Um, so he's got different perspectives, kind of different camera shots. And then third, scene changes. I mean, like, there's the great moment in that, in that little section is, of course, when the football game ends and there's that moment of silence and you hear a one-point loss is a one-point loss. Um, and then there's that other tape transition to the interview. But, um, you know, those are moments. And I, 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 um, I teach at our, I used to teach a radio documentary class at Columbia, Columbia, Columbia Journalism School. And the first story that every, all the students would do, we would come back and we would all listen to it. And every time there was a student who had a tape-to-tape -tape transition, I would give them a dollar. <laughs> and I think that, you know, this story, this little two-minute clip shows that you don't have to, you know, you can use these skills, these tools in every, every story that you do. You don't have to think about doing, okay, now I'm doing the non-narrated story. You know, these are, it's t you, t you think about giving your story over to tape. You think about, you know, using tape-to-tape -tape transitions. You think about just, um, you know, creating scenes and all that kind of stuff. So hopefully what we're going to talk about today, um, you don't need to think about it like, am I going to do the big non-narrated story? You just use it to make your stories better. Um, okay, so what are those tools? I think about it, let's go back to the uh, forest. Um, I think about it in two main, two, there are two major categories I want to talk about. One is collecting tape and one is producing the tape. And the mantra in collecting is options. You just think options, options, options. And the case study that I want to use to talk about this is um, our series from a few years ago uh, called Mandela and Audio History. And this was um, a two-year project where we were trying to tell 50 years of apartheid history um, without scripted narration and history for obvious reasons is hard to do without, not, without a script. So our challenge was how do you convey actual information that you're gonna have to do because this is a history. So the solution is options, is to make sure that you have so many options that when you need someone, when you need something said, you've got someone or some piece of sound there to say it. Um, what I wanna play is a, a five and a half minute um, section of what was, this is a five-part series, so it ran a little bit over an hour on All Things Considered. This is um, actually what we did with this series. There was a small chapter on the Soweto Uprising from 1976. Back in June, which was the 30th anniversary of the Soweto Uprising, uh, Ben Shapiro and I took that little chapter and, and expanded it a bit. So this is a chapter of that chapter. Um, Teach yourself Afrikaans. Good evening, listeners. Better start off by getting to know all the Afrikaans sounds. Lach, dach, en nach. 
Afrikaans is a hybridization, if you like, of Dutch. Dag en nacht. Thank you. Easy, isn't it? It's a language that was used by the, the, the rulers. And the black children hated Afrikaans with a passion. 1975, and Afrikaans is exactly 100 years old. To pay homage to the Afrikaans language, pupils of the school present a play in Afrikaans. Every school day began with an assembly of all the kids. And one day there's an announcement. I'm going to speak to you about Bantu education, the education of a million Bantu children. As of today, every subject would be taught in Afrikaans. And the teacher walks in, history becomes chaskidness. And we're all like, what are you talking about? And our teacher was standing there, trying very hard. He has an Afrikaans dictionary on the one hand, and he was trying to translate. And in complete exasperation, the teachers would say, you know what? I don't know. And that didn't work. Whole classes failed. When they did that, they actually mobilized the entire school generation because it represented everything that the oppressor stood for. This was a battle we had to fight. Soweto, the complex of black townships on the southwest corner of Johannesburg, with an estimated population of one and one quarter million. Every day, Sowetans pour into white homes, offices and factories in Johannesburg leaving the township to the children and the teenagers. June the 16th, 1976, starts very much as an ordinary day. Our school started at 8 a.m. as the tradition has had it with the singing of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. But on this day, instead of the Lord's Prayer, we sang in Kosisigilele Africa. God bless Africa which was our signal tuned to march out of the school premises. And we all joined at the time. At 8.15 in the morning, and precisely according to plan, students simultaneously marched out of five schools in Soweto, intending to protest the Afrikaans issue in a mass meeting at the Orlando football stadium. We had hundreds, probably thousands, of school kids. And we thought we know everything there is to know about managing protests. The first thing we were worried about is that everyone must be accounted for at all times. So we then had chains of five kids. And make sure you're holding somebody's hand all the time. If you're not holding somebody's hand, get worried, because where is, where is your partner? Then it became really a torrent, a sea of young black faces. Masses of students. I mean, we would never seen such a demonstration in many, many years. And at that point, the police tried to stop the march from going on to Orlando Stadium. I've never seen that many police. And you didn't only have police at that time, you had the defense force. So you actually had the army. They intervened by, first of all, setting dogs. And I saw these police dogs second to these kids, man. And I, I saw moments of real courage, especially from the girls. I mean, there's a group of kids kids with shining black shoes and little white socks and teeny little tunics <laughs> and they're singing freedom songs holding one another we actually looked cute it's unbelievable to think that anyone could have stood firm on their feet 
and actually shot into the crowd. Your initial thought is to secure yourself. And then you look around you. You see girls running, screaming. We had hundreds of school kids running helter-skelter, running all over the place. We had planned for water pipes, we had planned for maybe rubber bullets. We had not planned or thought that it's possible that people were actually going to be killed on that day. The teeming black township of Soweto has finally erupted into the violence that whites have been fearing for years. At least two of the dead fell when police opened fire on a crowd. I don't know why they, why they decided to shoot. I can only think it was black life and it didn't count. Life of African people had always been cheap. I mean, having grown up in the township, you know, you've had gunshots, but the sounds of bullets flying, you know, you're standing on top of an abandoned car and suddenly you hear bullets thudding on the side, you know, not knowing where the next one is going to come from. You just get a sense of how fleeting life can be. And you feel, you know, how are you going to deal with it tomorrow? Little quiz. Uh, anyone want to take a guess as to, uh, from that segment, what, what was the hardest part to tell without a script? Without being able to write? There's one section of that section. Okay, I'll help. Um, the setup. I mean, once you get to the point where the day begins, you know, June 16th starts and the protest, it's easy. The story begins, sorry, the story begins to tell itself. But the setup, which you can dispense of pretty easily if you've got, if you're writing, you know, explaining what Afrikaans is and then how this was important and then the announcement of the, te you know, so all that stuff, especially that section, the archival tape just becomes crucial. And um, obviously with this series, the archival tape, you know, this, this series rode on the back of the archival tape. And, you know, archival tape, especially in a series like this, has this kind of special magic, which is that a lot of the, you know, we were, um, you know, we were going through all different archives and I spent like two, you know, as an archival tape geek, spending two weeks in the basement of the SABC archives is just like a fantasy and going through all sorts of, you know, old tapes that haven't been touched since, you know, since whenever. And, and you know, there's some stuff that is really useful, you know, like old BBC reports and news reports, because one thing that that's doing is that's basically giving the same narration that you would give as a contemporary reporter, but it, it gets to do it in present tense. You know, it gets to be there in the field as opposed to you just saying, you know, looking back. Um, but as important as all that kind of the, the reporters on the scene stuff can be to, to just sort of replace your narration, it's also important to get the sounds and the scenes, of course, through that archival tape. And we were lucky to just, I mean, basically it's a question of like finding great stuff in, in places where you wouldn't expect it. And um, the beginning of that section with the uh, Teach Yourself Afrikaans lesson, for example, came from the SABC archives, just um, they've got it all digitized and all the stuff and everything that you would expect to want. But then they also have these old card, card catalogs that no one's looked at 
since, you know, since the 60s. And I was able to flip through some of those. And then there's like instructional radio program, Teach Yourself Afrikaans. You know, so sometimes you just get lucky and find gems like that. Or there was a section of the series about the Ravonia trial where Mandela and, and others were sentenced to life in prison. And um, people had heard before, it had been used in other documentaries, the, the judge's sentence, this little clip of the judge delivering the sentence. But we were able to find this mislabeled um, old LP that, um, that was actually the sound of the prosecutor delivering his opening statement. We also, the defense attorney had been long erased by the apartheid government, but the prosecutor was still there. And what that gave, other than just you know, a few words of an opening statement, was the sound of the courtroom. So all of a sudden we had you know, the coughs and the kind of the space of the courtroom from 1962, 63, um, to create that scene. So that stuff is, with history, is just, you know, is crucial. Um, okay, so that's sound elements. In terms of interviews for a story like this, a few notes. Uh, casting. Casting is really important to think about if there is someone who can play a sort of narrator-type role, or just what different people are good at different things. Some people um, are, you know, are good at kind of like color and emotion. Some people are good at kind of laying things out in a kind of logical play-by-play -play way. Some people are great, and these become very important, at transitions, kind of getting you from, from place to place. And even things like transitions from a man's voice to a woman's voice, um, from people who sound, have different energy, things like that. Um, planning. If you want to do a story without narration, you have to plan very carefully your interviews, getting people to identify themselves, um, having them do kind of cues to things, if you, if, knowing that you want to get to different topics, and so having people kind of throw to different topics or even different characters. It, a couple examples in the, in the piece we just heard, the Afrikaans section that I, that I just played you that starts it, what happens before that, which I didn't play you, is this section that's sort of the context of South Africa at that time. All the apartheid uh, protest leaders had been in prison or killed or in exile. There was this lull in the movement. In, but slowly, things started bubbling up with Stephen Biko and this youth movement. So that was all in this early section. And then, I, you know, then I've got this one guy saying, um, you could tell that something was going to give, and it happened on June 16th. So when you hear a line like that, it's like, okay, great. I've got, my, I've got my end of a chapter, and then I can go to the beginning of a chapter. Lines like that you develop an ear for that, become, that aren't necessarily important if, you've, if, you got the, if you're able to write, but they become very important if, you, if you're not writing. Um, and then the end of that section that you did here, when it sort of goes from the day and all the action to this sort of backs up a little bit to this kind of reflective moment where he's talking about being on the car and the bullets and being afraid. And so his last line is, and you feel, how are you going to deal with this tomorrow? Great, that's my cue to the next section is the next day and this starts to spread throughout the country and becomes this, you know, it kind of takes over the country. So those kind of lines um, become very important. So you have to, you have to, you have to be good at um, editing in your, in your head as you're doing the interview. And especially that becomes important because you have to know if you've got the complete thing. You know, if you hear, if, if you're writing a story again, and you've got this great nugget in your interview, well, you can write into it, you can write out of it. But if you're not using a script, you have to make sure you've got the setup, you've got the payoff, you've got it as some complete thought. So if I hear something good that I like, if you heard my raw tape of doing interviews, 
you would hear me blah 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 interview 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 and then you hear and then I hear something I like and I just attack and I make sure I'm sorry say it again I, really I don't get that but that first part well you know like can you say it again and it's you know I become like a stupid I don't get it annoying guy to the point where they you know start to get angry and fed up but I'm just trying to make sure that I've got all the pieces so you really have to kind of be edited in your head to know that you've got the elements to make it happen. Um, questions. We can take questions sort of along the way uh, at the end, but also along the way I'm going to sort of want to jump into a little bit more on producing, but um, feel free to just kind of raise your hand at any point if you have a question. Yeah? Can you go into a little more detail about how to plan interviews and like how to Doing interviews, I mean, it's a couple things. First of all, and this, is, this, this would apply in any kind of story you're doing. I mean, you know, you always want people to identify themselves anyway because that, you know, maybe you can use it. Of course, in a situation like this, you'd want to. Well, actually, I say this, and we didn't get people to identify themselves, actually, in the Mandela series. But um, I usually start interviews getting people to do something active, Partly because it kind of helps warm things up, but also because that can be such useful tape. So show me some photographs and talk about that. Um, if they're in an interesting, relevant space, can you walk me around, give me a tour? Give me a tour of something, some kind of active sound. And again, that's for two reasons. One, to just kind of get things a little looser, but also, you know, that's potentially your scene tape. So again, that's, this is something that applies in whatever kind of story you're doing. In terms of really thinking about what the the elements you're going to need if you're not going to have a script, you want as much as you can know where your story is going and what, what, where you need to get to. With the Mandela series, we didn't know that. We were really going in blind. And luckily, what we had was the luxury of time. We were able to do like fishing expeditions where we were doing so many interviews on similar topics that we knew someone, as I said before, people would be good at different things. And we can pick and choose and use what people were best at. Um, does that answer your question? Sorry? Yeah? Um, you, you just mentioned you didn't get people to ID themselves for this. And there was something I was wondering about. You know, mm -hmm. Was there like, an intro where they, the voices you're hearing had already established who they were? If it's a case that you didn't, can you just talk about you know, why you decided it didn't matter to know, say, the name or some external facts about the voices? Yeah. It was, I mean, it's, this is a kind of a longer discussion, but to give a nutshell, I mean, this is a big issue with NPR because especially in recent years, they don't like doing anything um, where people aren't identified. And we set out to get people to identify themselves. So of course, we had these on tape. But as you hear, so much of it is like this handoff, getting people to finish their, each other's sentences and this kind of bouncing back and forth. And we put it together with the IDs, and it just, it was, it was deadly. It slowed it down. It just, it, it just did not work at all. And of course, we thought maybe we just the first time someone speaks, they can talk, and it just it didn't work at all. So what we tried to do for important people, you know, de Klerk comes on and he can say something like, you know, like Peter and the Wolf, everyone's got their their cue. There's the you know, so de Klerk comes on and is like, you know, when I was president. Okay, so there are little clues in there most of the time. Hopefully, when Mandela comes on, it's like you know who he is because. Maybe we, oh, we had someone saying, you know, and Mandela, he was the leader. He was the one we all looked to, and then Mandela comes on. So there are ways you can finesse it. Um, and then we also just didn't feel like it was that important, especially, except for those few key people, because, you know, hi, I'm, you know, John Smith, I was a apartheid activist. Hi, I'm John Smith, I was a apartheid, I have, you know, Betsy, I was a part of, you know, it, 
didn't, you know, so we didn't do it. With the Soweto story, when we redid this piece, it became an issue again. And what we did is just in the back announce, we listed everyone who was up there. And we also put on the website transcripts so that people could know who was there if they were interested. But it's a tough issue. Um, the next piece I'll play has only two characters, and then it's easy. We got, you know, you get them to identify themselves. And the ideal thing is if you can get it, people identify themselves in some way that's interesting and it's good tape on its own, because we did a story on, um, I did a story on the WASPs, the, world, the women's, women pilots of World War II, this kind of experimental program to train women pilots in World War II. And, and we had, it sort of started out with this scene, like, hi, I'm so-and-so, I flew the B-27 bomber. Hi, I'm so-and-so, I flew the F-6. So that's interesting. You can make a little scene out of that. The more you can do that, the better. If it's just IDing for IDing's sake, then it's hard. Sounds like you're talking a lot about editing uh, and making choices by your ear, but how much is based on transcripts that you, of the interviews and you're editing on copy rather than off the very little. Um, I'm going to, with the last thing I'm going to play, um, I'm going to do a sort of experiment in showing this Pro Tools session and try to talk about the process. So I'll get into that a little bit. But, um, you know, because I have like a sort of a storyboard kind of outline where I have, but basically for me, it's really a question of almost getting to the point where you memorize the tape. And you have to, I mean, I, I've never found that editing on transcripts works because it just, you know, it's so much dependent on the inflection and just how, how you respond to the tape. And um, so I work on paper in terms of structure, but not in terms of editing. Hello, just parking in to let you know we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back with the rest of this session. You're listening to Chicago's Progressive This American life, I might the show about all the unseen are you tired of endlessly searching for good radio stories or maybe feeling overwhelmed by the amount of podcasts filling up your feed this is radio lab i'm jad Ron. well worry no more because third coast has you covered i'm gwen maxi host of third coast podcast resound ReSound is a themed, hour-long mix of the best in radio and podcasting from the past and present. We've been carefully curating nothing but the best stories from around the world since 2004, and we have a treasure trove of amazing audio. Each episode is bound to have something to fit every listener's individual taste. Personal stories, essays, sound art, mystery stories that twist and turn, and other audio experiments. So stop searching. Subscribe to ReSound today and treat yourself to the finest stories ever told in sound. Your ears will thank us. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And we're back. Okay, um, on to producing a bit. There are four kind of important areas of producing uh, that I think of that I'm going to talk about, and that's editing, transitions, scenes, and structure. I'm going to save scenes and structure for now. Um, but the challenge when you're doing it without a script is, I think of it as like the battle against murkiness. You know, like the danger of a non-narrated piece is this kind of like vague, mushy murkiness that you don't, because you don't have like the natural, you know, lovely script to come on and say and explain things. So, you know, I that's just my biggest fear all the time is that it's going to be like one run, long run-on sentence. So the tools that you have to battle the murky is, um, are transitions and editing. In terms of transitions, it's the classic thing that, that your script usually provides is um, going from one piece of tape and saying, you know, but then four years later, you know, this other thing happened. You know, it's easy. Transitions are easy with a script and they're hard. They're really difficult without... But you think about mini-stories. I try to think about mini-stories all the time so that I've got my story, within the story I've got a scene, and that's its own story, and within the scene I've got the tape bites, and that's its own story. You know, I, I want a beginning and end of each, of each thing so they feel like contained chapters. Yeah, I mean, I think listeners need to feel, either consciously or unconsciously, that there's, like, that there's an internal logic to the story, and I think if they don't feel that, then, then that gets to be a, a problem. And so editing, that's transitions, editing is very important. Um, rhythm, pace, and brevity, and clarity, and all those things are very important. And I think with non-narrated pieces, there's a higher bar. Because if you've got narration, you've got these, um, you can think about it as like a sort of swimming analogy. The listener is swimming, and with narration, there are these kind of like life preservers or these, you know, docks to like hold on to. If they get lost or they start getting bored or confused, either one of those deadly things, there's still opportunities to access the piece again. And it's harder if you don't have the script, if you don't have this familiar voice coming on and saying, okay, now we're here, and then we're going over here. Okay. Um, To illustrate the importance of editing, and this is just, you know, uh, again, I think the a higher bar, the meticulous editing with a non-narrative piece. What I thought I'd do is play two versions of um, my most recent story that I did. This is a story that aired in September on, on Oda, about Otabenga, who was a uh, Congolese pygmy back around the turn of the century, who in 1904 was brought over to this country for the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis, and then ended up two years later being exhibited in the Bronx Zoo. Um, maybe some of you heard this story in September, but the the story I first learned of the story, my wife was reading the book King Leopold's Ghost, and there are these wonderful footnotes in the book, and one of those footnotes is, is just a paragraph on this. So she read me that, and I, I thought that immediately went into my like futures list, and it stayed there. 
until, I'm sad to say, I read a New York Times piece um, in <laughs> August <laughs> about this story, and in the New York Times piece it said, 100 years ago, this coming September 8th, I think it was the 8th, um, it, is, it was the 100th year, 100 year anniversary of him being exhibited in the Bronx Zoo coming up. So at that point I had three weeks to do the story. Um, and now there are a couple problems with doing this story. First of all, uh, the sound elements. It's 1906, there's no archival tape, there's no sound at all. So how are you gonna do, do a non-narrative piece that way? And the answer partially was there were great newspaper clippings so we could have those read. The other problem, interviews. No one's alive from, from back then. Um, who are we gonna interview? We ended up um, primarily interviewing this guy, Phillips Bradford, who was the grandson of the explorer who brought Otobenga to this country. So that was great, and he ended up being like a nice kind of play-by-play -play kind of narrator to the piece. But and we also, but he, and after talking to him, I knew he would be useful, but not good tape. So I found this Congolese guy who actually had relatives who were also brought over with Autobenga to the World's Fair, and he was really kind of obsessed with this story. So I interviewed him. I thought, okay, perfect pairing. Uh, and he turned out to be just a terrible, terrible, terrible interview. Completely, completely unusable. Sweet man, unusable tape. Um, and I needed at least one more interview. At least I needed some person to be able to bank, bounce back and forth. And I found this woman, Carrie Allen McRae, who was a little child in... Lynchburg, Virginia, where Otobenga went after the zoo. So she remembers him as a little baby and her older brothers and sisters played with him and he lived in their house for a time, that sort of thing. And she ended up being wonderful and a perfect pairing with... Um, Did you find her? Um, through uh, Bradford, the guy I mentioned before. He had written, uh, written a self-published book about this whole story, so he knew all the characters. Um, okay. And then the third problem, the narrative structure. Just like Soweto, once um, in the story, once you get to the zoo, once he's in the zoo, the story again starts to tell itself. Got these great New York Times clippings. We just Skype. That's, you know, the engine of the story kicks in. But the hard part is getting him there, getting the story there. And there's a lot of explaining in the story that to do the 1904 World's Fair and why'd he come, blah, blah, blah. And I was ending up in this with the piece a few days before it was due with um, the zoo, the moment where he goes to the zoo, not happening until, I think it was about six and a half minutes into the piece, into what was, at that time, a 13-minute piece, but what would ultimately be an eight-minute piece. And the first third, I couldn't get it down, but it was just deadly. It was just kind of boring. So um, the moment, the trick was to attack. And what I wanted to do is play a version from a few days before the broadcast where this first section is four and a half minutes long and then again play the final version which is half that, which is two minutes and ten seconds. And uh, if you feel like jotting down some examples of what you yourself would cut, then uh, do that. That would be great. My name was Phillips Werner Bradford and I'm the grandson of Samuel Phillips Werner uh, a noted African explorer in his day. My grandfather brought uh, Otabenga along with uh, some other African natives uh, to this country in 1904. To my knowledge, it was the first time any African pygmies had ever been uh, introduced to the Western Hemisphere. My name is Carrie Allen McRae. 
I'm 92 years old, and uh, I knew Oda Benga when I was a very little girl. My grandfather, he was hired as an agent to bring uh, African natives to the uh, St. Louis Exposition, not to visit the exhibition, but to be an exhibition. October 21st, 1902. Dear Mr. Werner, you are to secure the voluntary attendance at the exposition of 12 pygmies by May 1st, 1904. Delays by shipwreck or other catastrophe accepted. Yours with respect, W.J. McGee, Department of Anthropology, St. Louis Exposition. Well, in general, the World's Fair was to celebrate the 100-year anniversary of the Louisiana Purchase from France. And the idea was to show how much in that 100 years we had advanced as a nation. And part of that was to be done by showing how primitive peoples lived all around the world. Uh, Dr. McGee, one time head of the Smithsonian and one time head of the National Geographic, wanted to put together a exhibition known as the Anthropology Exhibit. They had many varieties of American and South American Indian peoples. They had uh, the Japanese Ainu. They had Patagonian giants, quote unquote, from the southern tip of South America. And they wanted, of course, pygmies. April 1st, 1904. Dear Mr. Werner, as on last writing, I make but a single plea. Get the pygmies. W.J. McGee. Dear Dr. McGee, the first pygmy has been secured. He was obtained from a village in which he was held captive, having been taken prisoner at a remote point in the great Cansia Forest, 12 days march from any white settlement. Truly yours, S.P. Werner. My grandfather, well, when he got to Africa, his boat had broken down, and he was told, don't go into the jungle over there because there are some cannibals over there, and of course, that's all my grandfather needed to know. And when he met with the so-called cannibals, uh, a tribe known as the Bachelel, he found that they had a pygmy in a cage as a captive. And my, my grandfather uh, negotiated to purchase this uh, pygmy, Odebenga, for, I think it's uh, several bags of salt and the spool of brass wire. St. Louis Post-Dispatch, June 26, 1904. From the secluded forests of the Congo region in equatorial Africa, an American clergyman, the Reverend Samuel P. Werner, is bringing to the World's Fair a company of African pygmies, the smallest members of the human race. Now, for the first time, they will set foot on the Western Hemisphere. Here are some queer facts about the African pygmies. They live in forests. They are extremely shy. The average height of the men is that of a 12-year-old white boy. Their abnormally large heads are mounted on weak and thin necks. You know, that was a big thing, the 1904 World's Fair. For the pygmies, you would see a little village set up. They had built their huts, which are cone-shaped, just like they lived in the forest. This was the theme of the fair. It was to gather all of the, quote, lower forms of man. To think of the fact that they sent people around the world to gather the darker races. Pygmy has been known to eat 60 bananas in one meal and then ask for more. If caught, they are said to make excellent servants. 
God, I don't know if I can play that in tomorrow's session. I just need to, I just want to scream, hurry up. Um, that kind of kills me. Um, any, anyone want to volunteer a couple segments that maybe should go? Um, the, the description of the different kinds of uh, um, species or what, that, that, that the World's Fair wanted, very, very, very long, and I tuned it out. Good, it's gone. Another one? I don't think we need to know that the boat was broken down. I don't see how that related to anything. We killed that too. Well, did you want to put the, the older woman in the that's tough because you don't hear her for so long. Um, just because sort of what we talked about before, I wanted to ID people up front just to kind of get, you know, here's who we're going to hear from. So, yeah, that was a bit of an issue. You don't hear her. And that was another reason to shrink it because then when you do hear from her, it just hasn't been, it's not, hasn't been four minutes, it's been two minutes. I would just like to be listening. I didn't think anything would I thought it was all connection. But, you know, again, the thing is the piece doesn't start this is just set up, and the piece really begins later. And this is just, to me, this just, I just feel momentum just going into the ground. Maybe the second typewriter bit, I'll get the pigmy. You, 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 you guys are, are yeah, you're hitting, uh, what's that, three for three? The first two are the This is the. Wait, wait, I'm sorry, which part are you talking about? The very, you've got your intro and then you come into, you start saying what's grandpa again, and then there's the two articles. Right, right, right. And then right. you've got to grab them there. Yeah, yeah. Like that whole front. You guys are good editors, okay. This, okay, maybe I should just, I mean, again, the most important person in your life. Um, one of the most important people in your life is your editor. I mean, it's just so important. I'm lucky to have two great editors, Deborah George and Ben Shapiro. And, you know, so I'm at this point where I know I have to take out tons of stuff and I'm lost. And it, you are now at this point have a feedback loop in your head and you can't see clearly. And you just have to have people that you trust and that, um, that you can play stuff for. And that's what happened. And that's when we ended up at this version. My name is Carrie Allen McRae. I'm 92 years old, and I knew Ota Benga when I was a very little girl. Ota was brought over here by Samuel Phillips Werner. He was a missionary in the Congo. My name is Phillips Werner Bradford. My grandfather brought Ota Benga along with some other African natives to this country in 1904. He was hired as an agent to bring African pygmies to the St. Louis Exposition not to visit the exhibition, but to be an exhibition. Dear Mr. Werner, you are to secure the voluntary attendance at the exposition of 12 pygmies by May 1st, 1904, delays by shipwreck or other catastrophe accepted. Yours with respect, W.J. McGee, Department of Anthropology, St. Louis Exposition. Well, when he got to Africa, my grandfather met with a tribe known as the Bachelel, and he found that they had a pygmy in a cage as a captive. And my grandfather negotiated to purchase this pygmy, Odebenga, for I think it's uh, several bags of salt and a spool of brass wire. St. Louis Post-Dispatch, June 26, 1904. 
From the secluded forests of the Congo region in Equatorial Africa, an American clergyman, the Reverend Samuel P. Werner, is bringing to the World's Fair a company of African pygmies, the smallest members of the human race. Now, for the first time, they will set foot on the Western Hemisphere. Here are some queer facts about the African pygmies. The average height of the men is that of a 12-year-old white boy. They're extremely shy. They're you know, that was a big thing, the 1904 World's Fair. For the pygmies, they had built their huts, which are cone-shaped. So you would see a little village set up just like they lived in the forest. Pygmy has been known to eat 60 bananas in one meal and then ask for more. If caught, they are said to make excellent servants. Um, again, the importance of a good editor. I mean, it's just, a, you know, for, of course, this is for any radio piece. It's just, it's just really, really, really important. And I'm sure you've all had this experience of how different you listen to your own piece when you're just, you know, there with headphones or listening on your own and working at it and you've got this kind of like, again, like the feedback loop versus you bring a friend in to listen or an editor to listen or maybe a group of people to listen or you hear it on the radio or in like a group setting. I mean, every, every way that you hear your piece, you kind of hear it differently. You're kind of, you know, it triggers something to, to just listen to your piece with a new kind of perspective and it's, it's incredibly important. And I also just, <clears throat> also just want to say that the value of just not being indulgent with your own piece. I mean, you know, there's always tape that you love and there's always stuff that you're just kind of married to, but, you know, for the greater good of the larger structure of the piece, you just have to be brutal and think about how this works, you know, benefits the, the, the larger piece. And, you know, on the other hand, you know, when you play it for your editor and they want to cut the thing that you just think is so amazing, you have to fight to the death. So I'll say both those things. <laughs> Yeah. That was great. Thank you. That was a bit of a battle with NPR, too, in that we had some NPR people read some of the various clips. There were a lot of, I had more options of clips than I used in the piece. Um, and some of the NPR readings were good, some were just awful, 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 just like reading. And so then I got this actor to do the one that you heard um, there, and he was great. But then the problem was folks at NPR felt that then this sounds like a newsreel that we're deceiving. And my, you know, my argument was we say right away, St. Louis Dispatch, we're identifying it as clippings, and plus there were no newsreels then. And it was a bit of a battle, so actually, you probably didn't notice this, but between the first version and the second version, it was produced differently. Um, the first version, the music started first, and then you hear it. This version, the music inched up after St. Louis Dispatch. Um, that was my kind of effort to kind of, can't we all get along and, and keep this in the piece? <laughs> In the, in, the, in the beginning of this version, um, you had the woman come first and the man come, come second, and she actually said a little bit more, right? She said he was brought by this person right. and then he would die. I thought that was, that was really, that, that made it move forward. That was, yeah, absolutely. Because they yeah, set up absolutely. a relationship between, that, they, that they're aware of each other. And they're saying something rather than just identifying themselves, which is what we talked about before. Yeah, that was, that was, that was key to set her up more as character and also kind of advance the story, not just, yeah. Minimizing that the, uh, the grandson felt like the right thing to do too, because his, he had information, but the pace of it felt more like a newspaper clipping. It was this sort of circus-like thing, and that means it was the 100th anniversary of that, and all the times that he would speak much longer than the previous one, it was, it was so right off. Um, two, two things. One is I, I, we lost the music a 
second piece, and again, I thought that was much, much better as a result. Because I really felt, I almost felt like the music was competing with the two subjects, and then even heard from them again. Yeah, the second thing is just about, because we said we had three weeks to do this piece, mm -hmm. uh, from, you know, saw the New York Times article to basically it's going to air because NPR and Martin Stations are the kind of issues. I mean, was there a point when you all faced this and deadline breathing down your neck? Because it must have taken quite a while before you actually got to the point of having the interviews and being able to get to all your research. And this was a piece that was just in the back of your head. We spent two years doing the Mandela piece, and we were just down as just as down to the wire with that. I mean, I think it's just you know when you've got a sickness as I do, where you just can't do things ahead of a deadline, then that's just kind of the life you lead. But um, but no, it was. I mean, this, you know, this piece wasn't you know only two characters. It wasn't that hard to do in terms of the production. Um, what was the oh, the music question? Yeah, I mean, I mostly in a piece like this, I feel like music is a crutch. You know, I don't want it if I can get away without it. But if you listen to the whole piece, uh, it's up on our website if you want to go hear the whole thing. There are a couple points where just something's gone on for a while and I just need a break. I just need something else needs to happen before I go on to the next thing. And so, you, use, you know, the music starts to come in just as a, so you get a sense of a transition. And it's a false, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a crutch often, but it's a, it's a useful one. Can I just ask one more question about the deadline? You were, you said you were 13 minutes and you got down to eight minutes. When did that point come? Was that like two days to broadcast? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I'm, I'm, the next thing I want to talk about is actually structure. And, you know, I think this is a good um, cue to that, that uh, structure for me, I don't know if this is true for all of you, but is, is without a doubt the hardest part. I mean, it's, for me, it's the, it's the most uh, kind of psychologically traumatic part, especially that um, you, know, you collect the tape and you think, oh, this is going to be such a good story, and you're editing the tape, this is such a good story, and then you're structuring it, and it's like, this is junk, and how did I ever do a radio story ever before in my life? And this is just, what was I thinking? And so once you have the structure in place, then you're cutting it down and making it beautiful, and then, then it starts to go. But for me, structuring the piece is just, every time, it's just... It's just um, hard and depressing and just difficult. I don't know if this is, you know, if this is just me or if this is everyone. But, um, you know, the goal is that you want, when the listener hears the piece, that uh, it, the structure feels inevitable. You know, it doesn't feel like there were 99 ways to tell the piece. It feels like there was just one. When, of course, as we learned this morning, there are 99. There are an infinity number of ways to tell the story. Um, there's a difference between structuring a piece in terms of history and, and with diaries, which is what I'm going to go to now. And, you know, history, you're, of course, you're dealing with, you know, with real information that, that actually happened in a bit of a kind of life script you have to follow. And so in some ways it's easier because there's a chronology, there's a built-in chronology, and then the difficult part is getting that information across. With diaries um, and, and many other stories, in some sense you're making up the story in terms of the structure. Things can happen different times and that's a very powerful you know, difference whether it happens over here or over here. Um, and so I want to talk about uh, Tembi's diary um, to talk about structure and also to talk, I really, I wanted to do an experiment with this and let me see here. Um, my experiment is that I wanted to really talk about process and 
and and break it down as best I could. And I wanted to, to open up a to use the Pro Tools session to talk about that. But I have to say that um, as I as I was kind of rehearsing the using the Pro Tools session yesterday and this morning, it's kind of uh, a disaster. It's kind of it's hard. It's hard to explain it. I mean, it's almost like you sort of would need to be familiar with all 50 hours of the raw tape to really um, make this useful. And that's maybe a lot to ask. Um, but let me open this up. Tembi's story, just for me personally, was one of the hardest structures I've ever gone through. I'm not really sure why, uh, but it, but it was. Um, okay. Now, don't, don't be frightened. <laughs> but I just want to give you a little bit of tour. So in terms of, you know, one thing to think about is content management. You've got all this tape. How do you begin to make sense of it? Okay. Uh, these first, I just want to sort of give you a little guide. This is a rough draft session that, that I've got right here. So the top track is Tembi. That's what I think of more as narration. This is, I'm beginning to build the piece on these top four tracks here with Tembi, with scene, with working, can you read those things on the left? Is that, I don't know if you can read it. Um, this working track, which is sort of like things I'm playing with. And this is my little, uh, my kind of genius innovation, my con contribution to the world of Pro Tools, these uh, little empty uh, <laughs> audio files here that I just use for visual cues so that I've got all the elements of the scene here and if I want to flip it around, I just grab this whole thing, cut and paste and move it, okay? And then if I'm editing things and all of a sudden, you know, this is all, the, you know, it's all messed up over here. I can just line these little lines up again. Everyone's got their own little tricks, but this is mine. I just love these little empty regions that I use to kind of line. Okay, sorry. Okay. Um, this stuff here, so this one says clinic. So this is all the clinic scene right here. This is like sort of narration about going to the clinic. This is more of a scene, and this is kind of like options in this working track. So what I do, I just use these kind of visual cues, and there are four of them there just because, you know, I'm shrinking, enlarging the screen all the, all the time. I use these just, okay, this is my clinic chapter. It's a nice visual cue. Where's that clinic chapter? Oh, I've got this thing that would be great in clinic chapter. Move it over here. Also, if I'm editing, if I'm starting to build a piece, and I cut out a big chunk here, as you know, in shuffle mode, if you're using Pro Tools, all this is going to slip over there. I don't want to have to build it over again. I just quickly line this up with my eye, and it's back in place. So I find that very useful. Wow, some real nuts and bolts tricks today, huh? Um, okay, but I want to give you a sense of the content management aspect, which is what I, when I start editing the piece, I've got all the tape loaded in, and I'm just like throwing things in tracks to kind of categorize it and, and lump it. So down here we've got, this is like general ambience, if you see this, this one over here. How many different tracks do you have? It's a lot of tracks. I don't know. You can count. Uh, this is a support group scene, which I ended up not using, this, um, where she, uh, her and other um, teenagers with, who are HIV positive get together. I ended up not using that scene. This is a whole bunch of different clinic scenes that I can, you know, if I need to. This is a music track. Um, baby. Okay, so these are all different tracks. An interview with a friend. Um, this is, this is Melly, this is Melikaya, her boyfriend. This is all the Melikaya tape. This is all the stuff that she recorded in her neighborhood, which is over the year and a half that she recorded, this is like a lot of walks around her neighborhood. So these are all kind of possibilities. So I'm doing a selects. I'm selecting possible tape and throwing it into all these categories. And then I start to organize it, edit it down into some manageable, you know, 
into a, uh, where you can start to kind of learn and memorize the tape, really. And then you begin to structure the piece. Yes? Do you find yourself editing little chunks at a time, like this first no. three minutes, I've got it, now they're 25 minutes? Unless, you know, it's like, it's this ballet because you want to, to structure the piece, you have to edit the tape down. But then to edit the tape down, you have to know the structure because it's going to be completely different whether it's, you know, um, how, does this, how does this scene with a boyfriend play before we know she has a baby or how does the scene play after she has a baby? It's completely different. This works in this scenario and not in this scenario. So it's this real kind of catch-22 um, and basically you're going back and forth. You're getting it down, you're structuring. You're getting it down, you're structuring. And, and I don't know, maybe this is explaining why I have such a hard time structuring. I don't know. How long is the finished piece? This finished piece was uh, 22 minutes. Can you see about 50 hours of tape? Uh, 50 hours of raw tape, which th in this rough draft structure, it's not really a fair calculation because like over here, for example, there's all this space because these are some options down here. So this isn't really how long this draft is, but it's like a four-hour draft. It's a four-hour slightly structured collection of tape in chapters. So that's how I begin. So then it's a question of finding this, again, finding this structure so I can begin to really edit the tape. Joe, will you talk about the relationship to the top four tracks to the rest of them again? Again, these, the ones below are sort of storage tracks, a track of sort of diary-ish kind of stuff, a track of um, sound scenes at home, you know, brushing their teeth, washing dishes, being at home, and then these kind of scenes with the mom, with the dad. So those are like storage tracks, which then I'll edit down from that tape that I'll build the top stuff. Okay, so. Um, and Joe, do, do, you, do you load, do you load, I mean, I assume she was sort of sending you tapes sort of, uh, as she was going along, and would you load it in? No. Or, I, you load it all in at the end? I'll usually load it all in at the end, because, I mean, I'll make notes about the tape, because I need to know what else we need, what, I, what she's good at, what I want her to do, and, and, and and, and most importantly, especially with diarists, you need to be giving them feedback all the time. They can't think it's just some empty, you know, bucket it's going into. The, you know, so there's like this like response that needs to happen all the time. But um, no, in terms of starting the production, I just I load it all in. And you know, used to, in the earlier days, I would load in selects. Now hard drives are so big and cheap, dump it all in and start cutting. So do you ever have a transcript or you just listen to it that first time? Kind I, of used to, it I used to have, tra we had uh, transcripts in the Mandela series because in that case there was so many times when we need, we need something about this. How do we, you know, there was actual information that needed to be conveyed and we needed to do word searches or find it. There was too much tape here. I just, I didn't deal with transcripts. Um, okay, I'm a little bit, I, I got to rush a little and I'm, um, so I want to talk for a second about scenes because the way I structure is is completely scene based especially for a diary but usually for everything it's scene based and that doesn't mean I mean scenes play two roles um, they're the place where something is happening but it's also and then the information it's like two layers the information that's over that scene can be anything so again the scene with the boyfriend um, it could be you know the Malachi scene, I could have used it to talk about her baby, but it, it turns out we didn't introduce the baby till later on. It could talk about their relationship. It could talk about when she got very sick and almost died, but actually that didn't happen till later on in the piece in the end. Um, or it could talk about getting better. There were all different ways we could use the Malachi scene 
um, depending on where it's structured. So in terms of the structure, you know, there are these layers of what you have to think about. There's the logic of it, um, what makes sense to learn when. There's an emotional component, you know, because you want the story to feel like a story, like a journey. And then there's also just things like changes in, in, um, in texture and mood. You know, do you, um, like a mixtape, you know, do you follow Billie Holiday with Hank Williams or with Ella Fitzgerald? You know, are you going for contrast? Are you going from a scene where um, the Malachi scene again, I, I'm using the scene because it's this wonderful scene where they're dancing. So it has a lot of life to it and action in it. So do you use this scene, um, which I did, out of this long stream where she's just talking about how she was infected and there's no scene underneath it and it's just kind of dry? I mean, obviously that, that, that was, that's what I wanted to do to have this contrast. Um, so thinking about the, the texture of scenes is important too. Um, okay, um, so is this useful seeing this session? Because this is, again, this is a draft. And what I've got here, if I can just expand it. So as you're going through, one of the important things also is, um, to me, the most important thing is figuring out early on the beginning and the end. You know, it's like you talk about a puzzle and people, you know, you build a frame first. It just it gives you this, this, this frame, this boundary. So I, even if the end changes, even if the beginning changes, I need a beginning and end before I can really start to structure just to feel, just to feel safe. <laughs> um, and we had the beginning early on. The beginning I knew because if some of you have heard the, the piece, she starts off, she does what she calls her HIV prayer where she looks in the mirror and talks to her HIV virus. And that was actually how she introduced herself to me when I was first talking to her. She told me about this and it just kind of stuck in my brain and that was like, I couldn't get it out of my mind. And so when she did that in the tape, I knew that's how we were starting the piece. The end, I also knew what the scene would be because it's this lovely scene late at night where she's putting her kid to bed and, and it's kind of crying and, and it's just this late night sort of before I go to bed, diary entry kind of stuff. And, you know, nighttime just feels like the end of a piece. and all. You know, so I kind of knew that was where I was heading toward as far as what she was going to say in that scene. I had no idea. But there were all these scenes that didn't make it in the piece that are in this draft that I'm seeing now. From the mirror, um, we went to her neighborhood, walking around her neighborhood that ended up being shifted much later. Let me do this on this sheet. Um, then we went to the clinic, then the story of how she was infected, then the boyfriend, then learning about the baby, then going to the mom scene. Then there were two dad scenes in this original version, dad one, where she goes to tell him the news. This is kind of the big moment in the piece where she tells her dad that, she's, that she has AIDS he hasn't known for a long time. And of course, you know that this is kind of the, the drama, this is like where the piece is building toward. But I originally had it where she goes and then she chickens out and then later and then later where she tells him. We ended up cutting the first one. There's this friend interview, this lovely interview with a friend who almost died then got on the drugs. I was gonna use that as a way to talk about the drugs, the antiretrovirals, cut that. This lovely scene with, uh, at a protest with all this lovely singing and marching, access to the drugs and all this stuff. And I, for so long, I was sure this is like, this is like the great scene of the piece. It's so full of life. And we cut that. And I could go on for a while about why, but partly it had to do with just as the whole piece is being built, that scene played like she's already arrived. She's kind of, you know, she's there. And this piece is really about the journey of getting there there being, you know, dealing with the disease and all that kind of stuff. Um, okay. 
Let me jump to the final structure. See, it's hard with these sessions. If you knew all the tape, it'd be, it'd be easy, but. Can I ask a quick question about yes. structure? Is your first structure um, like a safe one, talk about the beginning and end? Do you start off with a kind of a more tame structure and then get more bold with your choice of the same for the drafts? Is there I, I guess I don't, I don't think about it as like tame and bold. I just think about it as just making sense. Is, is the main thing. It's really hard to do nonlinear structure, at least I find, without, without a script. You know, in the Mandela piece, for example, we had so many great stories and, and tape about things like, you know, Mandela in prison playing chess and like people would let him win and like this, like, you know, great little anecdotes. And it just, we, I was sure we'd get this story in and that story in. And then as we were putting it together, it all dropped out because it's just this like, train of narrative that has to be followed. And it's just, I find it really hard to take side roads without script to say, you know, and another thing over here is this happening. And, you know, it, by the way, it's just hard to do that. Um, you get derailed. So, no, the, the, sculpt, the stru structure tends to be very linear. And where it gets, where you, once you have the base of it, then you can worry more about things like texture and sound and, mood and those kind of things, which is partly maybe what you're talking about. This is the final piece, and I just want to play, um, I will play this Malachi scene that I've been talking about. And, you know, one of the reasons this scene was so useful, as I said, is there's this dancing, there's this real kind of scene to it. It's a story within a story, and that's always what I'm looking for. I'm hoping that all of these little building blocks, these scenes that I'm talking about, are self-contained stories. And Malachi's was that what I had that scene represent and say, and her, and her say over it in her narration, her diary entries, that wouldn't be resolved until it was actually locked in to the structure of the piece. And now I'm at home. Oh, hi. So where are you going? This is Malachi, my boyfriend. Say hi. Hi. I was telling him how cute you look. <laughs> <laughs> My boyfriend's name is Milikai. We live together. We've been together for two years. Okay. Play. And Milikai is obsessed with music. Yeah. Hey, come Milikai, let's dance. <laughs> We are very close. Everyone knows we are very close. If they see Melkai, they see me. We are always together. He met me and I met him. And that was it. I remember when I find out about my HIV status, it was very painful to tell him. I thought, hey, what if I've also infected him? Now I've ruined my life and I've ruined everybody's life. Milkai. Yeah. Do you ever wish that maybe we were, you have never have met me? No. <laughs> Just because the only thing is that I love you. You know that. Yes. But I'm the one who's infected you. I don't want to blame you. You didn't chase after AIDS 
they didn't go on top of the mountain and said, you want to have AIDS, you know? And I don't want you to blame yourself. Just be strong. Okay. For me, what scares me most is that I think we are not going to die at the same time if we die. I know that you think if you die first, I'm going to have another girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing was <laughs> No, nothing was done. Really, I'm thinking that if one of us dies, you know how would it be? At least if we were going to die there at the same time. <laughs> Give me a kiss for that. <laughs> You know, it's funny, that, that last, um, that's probably my favorite bit of tape in the whole story, that last little scene between them. And, and um, I didn't find that till kind of late in the game. It had been kind of lost in, <laughs> in that mess you saw over there. And partly it was because, you know, I was, again, in terms of that scene, that, that, that was there in earlier structures, but what, it, what was being said in that scene wasn't until the structure got more set. And so the ending of that scene was much more like, it's gonna be okay, and much more kind of like, I don't know, you know, sad. And, and it, of course, this piece didn't need that, and it was also coming from this section where she's talking about how she was infected and then going to a section where she gets very sick. So then, to then be going through some outtakes and then refine that scene where it's, of course, so serious, talking about dying, but they're just kidding. It was like, ah. Oh. So there's a lot of, you know, there's, great tape that once you structure the piece just doesn't work and there's tape that you pass over that once you structure the piece becomes, becomes um, really, really crucial. Um, just a few last thoughts and we're not gonna have much time for questions but if anyone wants to stay a little bit um, later. Uh, you know, just again, what I said earlier when I played Sandy's piece, like I think it's really important to remember that you don't have to think about just doing like the non-narrated big documentary. You, can, you know, this is stuff that just, is applicable to every radio story you do, a news story, a writerly piece, and it's just a question of kind of turning the piece over to tape a little bit more. And, and as I said with this Malachi scene, telling stories within stories and thinking about not just the big story, but then the scene as a story, and even every little bit of soundbite as a story, and finding moments, you know, if you're turning the tape over to, your story over to tape, finding moments that, you know, you love that can carry you over the hard times, the structure or whatever else, or your difficult moments, and knowing how to recognize uh, good tape. And you know, for me, the, the best tape is always tape where something happens, something unfolds there in front of the listener, and you feel like you're experiencing it, the listener's experiencing it at the same time. And you know, even, you know, even if it's just a regular interview, I'm sure, I'm sure you can all kind of hear the difference when you're editing your tape, the difference between someone just saying something that they've said before and someone saying something where you can actually hear them thinking it, you know? And that's like, you know, even that's almost a metaphor, like something is happening in that tape. And so you're always looking for, to capture that sort of experience, even if it's just in a sentence. Um, okay, is it corny to end with a quote? <laughs> This is a quote. I just, I'll end with it, whatever. Um, it's uh, from the classic James A.G., Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. But this, I thought this quote was kind of relevant. He says, If I could do it, I'd do no writing at all here. It would be photographs. The rest would be fragments of cloth, bits of cotton, lumps of earth, records of speech, pieces of wood and iron, vials of odor, plates of food and of excrement. 
Take a kind of nice to end on that word, experiment. <laughs> um, a few more questions? When you work with somebody for a year or a year and a half, so you they start to get, maybe start to get bored? Or, but also what I'm wondering is how do you offer any sort of compensation for how much time and energy they put into a project? Um, it's an interesting question, especially with Tempe. Um, I, I pay the diarists. It's not like uh, they're the subject of the story and there's this journalistic issue of pain, at least that's not the way I see it. With the, with the diarists, they're the reporter and I'm the producer. That's the way I see the relationship, and so I pay them. Um, and usually with a teenage diarist, I pay them per tape as a sort of incentive. <laughs> um, you said when you were talking about that uh, last scene there that you uh, found that later. How often do you go back through that five gazillion hours of tape to hunt after you've built a structure and you've got a first, second, third, fourth version that you're heading yeah. on a path with. Did everyone hear that question? Yeah. Uh, how often? Okay, so I think it's, it's a really good question and uh, you know, for me, not often enough. And the Soweto story that you heard before, as I mentioned, that was, um, we did, the Mandela series was done, that was in April 2004, and then the 30th anniversary of the Soweto uprising was ju this past June. So we were able to take this six-minute chapter that was Soweto and expand it to a 13-minute story. And I've never done that before, like expanding a piece where the structure is already there, you know it works, and then you're just making it better and more beautiful. And it was the best, without a doubt, the best experience I've ever had producing radio. I did it with Ben Shapiro. Is Ben here? Um, anyway, so we did that together, and it was just so much fun to, again, not have this trauma, the structure, and just being able to kind of make it perfect and go through all the tape again. And this, unfortunately for me, rarely, rarely happens because you're, you know, you're so often working on deadline. But I think that's the best thing you could do is to get the piece in a point where it's almost finished, it's structured, it's kind of relatively down to size, and then you go through all that tape over again. Because so much of the time, it's like little, little things make a huge difference, a little transition, a little like something to just liven up this bit of tape or whatever. So I think that's, I mean, I would like to do that in every piece, and unfortunately it just doesn't happen. Thank you very much. Thanks for downloading the Third Coast Pocket Conference. We'll be back soon with more sessions, but until then, you can always check out our archive of conference audio at thirdcoastfestival.org. Or have a listen to our other podcast, ReSound, for the best audio stories from around the world. Okay, speak soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 